0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Folks, did you see the new guidance from FDA? I know there's been a lot lately, but this one came out uh, early February it's called the safety and performance based pathway uh, it pertains to the five ten K process um, it is a little bit of a, a, an expansion if you will on the abbreviated five ten k there was a guidance that came out draft guidance that came out from FDA back in April of two thousand eighteen so this is a sort of a continuation on that this particular theme about alternative pathways, you know, leveraging that 510k vehicle. It's pretty interesting. Um, Is there anything new or not? Uh, Maybe that's debatable. But uh, to go through uh, sort of what's in this new guidance document and why it matters to you, I have familiar voice and guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews. Uh, He's the president of Vascular Sciences. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And uh, today, well, folks, let's just say you know it feels like every week these days there's a new press release here, a new update there, a new guidance. FDA is very active these days, and I think it's good. Uh, I guess we can talk a little bit about that today. But uh, joining me is uh, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. And and Mike, we're going to dive into this new safety and performance-based 510K today. What do you think? I think that's a great topic,
1: John. And thanks, as always, for the opportunity to have this conversation. All
0: right, so you and I talked about this a little bit on a recent episode, and I think, you know, now that the guidance document is out and and we'll talk a little bit about that, I don't want to steal too much of the thunder for today, but we have a little bit more context to what this means. But I guess first and foremost, for, for those who maybe haven't been seeing all these updates and new guidances and all that sort of thing, might be a good place to start. What is this new safety and performance based 510k about anyway?
1: So it's a great question, John. So
0: this particular guidance that we're referring to, and we
1: can provide a a link on the website, it's the um, final draft of the safety and performance-based pathway. It was Finalized on February first, and basically, it's an um, uh, it's an expansion of the previous draft. Uh, As a matter of fact, the title of the previous draft was "Expansion of the Abbreviated Five Ten K Demonstrating Substantial Equivalence Through Performance Criteria." That was put out in uh, in twenty eighteen, and it was just finalized uh, in the beginning of. February in 2019. And you're right, John, we discussed this topic in a previous podcast back in January of 2018, when Scott Gottlieb, the soon-to-be former FDA commissioner, announced the oh, what he was calling the alternative 510K. Um, and by the way, if anybody thinks that this particular guidance is final, even though it's marked final. Uh, please give me some of whatever it is that you're smoking because no guidance is ever final, regardless of whether it says draft or final. These are all works in progress.
0: Well, well, I mean that's pretty clear. I mean the, like you said the the quote uh, the, the the previous version of this, although it was titled something else. Uh, the ink was still. Uh, I guess we don't. That's. I just realized as I was starting to say that the ink is still dry. We probably don't even use that saying anymore. But anyway, the. I don't know what the the software equivalent of, of digital equivalent of that is, but but the the previous guidance was wasn't even a year old, and so now here we've we've already seen an iteration of that.
1: That's right, and and I think to put this in a slightly broader context, John, um, this is part of uh, what FDA announced last year as a transformative A series of transformative new steps to try to modernize the 510K program uh, and to advance the review of safe and effective medical devices. This was announced by FDA in several press releases um, because, as you and I have talked about, and I think much of our audience knows, the 510K is under an almost constant state of attack. Today, um, and so basically, uh, FDA to their credit is trying to to get a uh, trying to get ahead of the story, and um, you know trying to to propose changes to strengthen the five ten k program. Yeah. overall it's it's difficult you know we do try to provide a bit of a, a balance on one hand we want to try to encourage newer and more advanced technologies medical device technologies to come onto the market that are uh, safer and more effective but at the same time we have to show that they're substantially equivalent so my question to you, John, is, is: Is that even possible? You know, is it possible to have a newer, more advanced technology that's safer and more effective, but at the same time is substantially equivalent or basically the same as what we already have, or is this just simply a a, a game that we're playing? What do you think, John?
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know that I feel that it's. I don't think it's a game. I think. I mean, I don't know. It's a tough. Qu- you asked me a, a, a challenging question <laughs> late in the day, Mike, and I already told you before we started that I feel like my brain is a little bit fried. But but at the same time, I mean, it's like, all right, I don't, I don't feel like it's a game because I still, as a, a medical device company, uh, I still have to build my case. I have to demonstrate that that this product is that have done the proper things from not only from a due diligence standpoint, but from a product development standpoint, from a testing standpoint. The the, the one, some may even argue that that whole predicate, you know, being able to compare to a predicate technology, as you pointed out there, the 510k process has been scrutinized by many for a long time. I, in fact, just saw a a new uh, article, I think yesterday where some local news channel was featuring this as their top story on their evening news and that sort of thing so it still comes under fire it's been under fire probably since the day that it came out so i actually am encouraged uh, by this because you know it's it's still using sort of the premise or or the the idea behind the 510k process as far as building the case uh to to demonstrates that your product is safe and that it meets the needs of the end user and that you've done all the proper testing and due diligence um so i think that that that, that's a good practice it's a good scientific method uh regardless of whether or not the predicate is involved or not um so what do you think well listen the 510k is here to stay
1: i mean there's no question about it it's been around for over 40 years and it's not going to go anywhere so let's let's drill into in a little more detail this specific new version of the 510K, which is the subject of this particular guidance and uh, the title of which is called Safety and Performance-Based 510K. Um, Starting out with the name, you know, Safety and Performance-Based. Well, I don't know about you, John, but shouldn't all submissions be Safety and Performance-Based? So what's special about this particular version of the 510K. FDA is sort of spinning it as a subtype of the existing abbreviated 510K. One of the differences is that it's being limited to what FDA is calling well-understood technologies, well-understood technologies. Well, once again, I ask the question, should, should not all 510Ks, if they're substantially equivalent, should they not be well-understood technologies? And if they are not well-understood technologies, then why would they be a 510K? Um, And I'll share with you some regulatory precedent on this, John. Um, There's a very uncommonly used pathway to market for class three medical devices called the product development protocol or PDP. One of the criteria of using a PDP is that you have to show that it's well-established technology. So that phrase has been around in the regulatory vernacular for quite a long time. But the regulation does not define what well-established means. And a few years ago, I had somebody come up to me. They said they were considering uh, using the PDP. The regulation says, well, it has to be well-established technology. What does that mean? How do they show that? And I said, with all due respect, didn't you go to elementary school? I mean, do we need regulation to tell us what well-established technology means? To yeah. me, well-established means that the technology has been around for a long time, that there's a long history of safety and efficacy. There's a good understanding of the, the risk benefits. We have multiple devices that have been on the market using that established technology, maybe devices from different manufacturers using similar technology. So basically, we go into the FDA, and I would do this exactly the same with this new safety and performance-based 510K. I would say, look, device is well-established technology, and here are all of the reasons why it's well-established. Um, does that
0: make sense John It does, and let me sort of uh say what I heard you offer you know we um even with this this new safety and performance five ten k i mean the, the, to your point the the term safety and performance um That should be the basis of of any 510K, uh, regardless of if I fall under the the scope of this new guidance or or not. I should be focusing on the safety of my device. I should be focusing on whether or not my device works. I mean, you all know by now, uh, I'm sure if you've listened to anything on the Global Medical Device podcast or read any content on the Greenlight Guru blog, I'm a design control nerd and safety and performance is... In my way of looking at it, another way of saying, I'm doing a good job during the design and development process. I'm documenting good design controls. I'm capturing risk and and assessing and mitigating uh, risk to acceptable levels. So I think that is really important, uh, regardless of whether or not a predicate is involved. I still should be showing that my device is safe. I should be showing that it performs as expected.
1: I agree. So one of the theoretical advantages uh, of the safety and performance-based 510K is that, or theoretical requirements rather, is that the technology needs to be well-established and it's up to us to show how that is. Another of the advantages um, that that FDA is touting is that like the abbreviated 510K, we don't have to do a head-to-head substantial equivalence comparison. In other words... The regulation for all 510K says that we have to show the device is substantially equivalent to a predicate. But the regulation does not say how we show it substantially equivalent. And in my opinion, John, that should be up to us. The most traditional way to do it, and I've done this many times before, and I'm sure you have as well, you get you you, you test your particular device and the predicate device head to head, so to speak, and you Compare the results, and that's the the sort of the gold standard for showing substantial equivalence. So, for example, if you're if you have a catheter, you might have a torture track that you subject your new catheter and the predicate catheter to, and you measure such things as torqueability and pushability and and so on as you as you go through this torture track, this anatomical model, and then you do this head to head comparison. That's one way, probably the most common way. To show substantial equivalence. But it's not the only way. Another way to show substantial equivalence is to do what I call a paper based substantial equivalence comparison, where instead of doing the physical testing on your device and the predicate, you do a, a paper analysis. Uh, And this is something that we can do with the uh, abbreviated 510K. And now something that we can do with the safety and performance-based 510K. We compare on paper our new catheter to either an existing catheter, or in this particular case, we would compare it to a sort of a a generic catheter, so to speak, because another thing that's similar uh, in this new 510k to the abbreviated 510k is that we're comparing it to sort of a family of devices, a composite of similar Devices that are either described in a guidance document or some sort of an industry standard or special controls. In other words, one of the criteria for the safety and performance-based 510k is to show that uh, is to show conformity with performance criteria. So basically, what that means is we're doing a paper comparison. That's point number one. But we're also not doing it to another specific device necessarily, but rather a family of similar devices. We're sort of averaging them all out together. But let me be clear, John, these have always been options in all 510Ks. In other yeah. words, I have had several traditional 510Ks where I've done a paper substantial equivalence argument, and we can talk about when to do that in a moment. But th- th- does that make sense? Do you think that uh, that we're explaining this clearly?
0: Uh, I think so, um, and I, I want to. I have a couple of questions to help clarify maybe some things on the topic to make sure that that those listening are are following along with us. But folks, I want to re- remind you. I'm talking with Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences, and you know he's the, the best, frankly, when it comes to regulatory strategy and and guidance. So you know, if you have a new device. Uh, or an existing device, or you're making changes, or or whatever the case may be, and you're trying to figure out the best uh, pathway for your product and your technology, I would encourage you to reach out to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. We're talking about this new uh, guidance document that came out about a month ago, early February-ish, from FDA, the safety and performance-based pathway, or the safety and performance-based 510K. So, we're talking a little bit about that. But Let's dive into Mike a little bit about the um, the similar technology. I want to, and the word "similar" is one of those fuzzy gray words that, um, depending on your way of looking at it, could be uh, a detriment or could be an advantage, I suppose. But you talked about the notion of similar, like uh, product family or similar technology or similar, you know, in your example, catheter. I assume that the indication for use will be pretty important to define what is or is not similar. Would you agree with that statement? 100%
1: John. As a matter of fact, that goes back to uh, when the 510k was created in 1976. So really nothing is new here when it comes to substantial equivalence. When we talk about substantial equivalence, what we mean is the two devices need to be basically the same in terms of labeling, which is what you just asked about, and technology. We have to address both of those. And when I uh, make a substantial equivalence argument in either a pre-sub or in a 510K submission, John, I decouple the two. In other words, most many people, they will talk about substantial equivalence for labeling and technology altogether. I think it's one of the reasons why, quite frankly, so many 510Ks are rejected because of substantial equivalence. So I decouple them. I say, okay, here's the labeling for my predicate, and here's the labeling for my device. Here's the technology for my predicate, and here's the technology for my device. And I do a comparison between the two. So nothing along those lines has changed. The only thing that has changed a little bit with this uh, safety and performance-based 510K is that We're able to do it on paper, which again we've been able to do all the time, and we're doing it. We're comparing it to a group and an aggregate of devices. That when and when I say you know comparing it to an industry standard, that's exactly what I mean because that that industry standard typically is derived from a group of similar devices how they perform. That's how that's how we put that standard together.
0: Okay. So let me, I know it may sound like the same question phrase in a slightly different way, but I think it's important to get clarity around this. Do you think that, uh, you know, with that indication for use, let's just stick with that catheter example for a moment. You know, if I'm, uh, let's say, working on a, a catheter that's used for central venous access, and I find a, you know, quote, a similar technology for a catheter that's used for arterial access, you know, maybe it's the same material, similar dimensions, uh, and that sort of thing. One's venous, one's arterial, but the indications are, are different. Is that a case where I can make that same argument? Well, you could certainly try, John. Um, But the question that you're asking, and again, this
1: this goes back to 1976, this is a question that the medical device industry has struggled with here in the United States for the last over 40 years, and that is how different can two devices be, both in terms of labeling as well as technology, and yet still be similar enough, still be close enough to be substantially equivalent? And although FDA has put out a litany of guidances over the years to try to address that question, to be honest with you, John, there's absolutely no answer to that question. So here's my best advice, and I do this with companies all the time. We put together the arguments as strongly as we can, showing that the device is substantially equivalent, and then we take it to the FDA and we sell it to them. Or alternatively, when we put those arguments together and we see, gee, that difference in business, the, the example that you just gave is a great one, John, arterial versus venous, if those differences we think are not easy to mitigate, then maybe we take it to the FDA as a de novo as opposed to as a 510K. But this question, and I see companies struggle with this You know, for, for the 30 years I've been in this business now, how different can two devices be and yet still be close enough I'm sorry, but simply put, there's no answer to that question. We have to take it in as a case-by-case basis. We have to make the best decision that we can as a company. And then once we make our decision, we take it to the FDA and sell it to them. The only question that remains is when do we sell it to them? Do we yeah. sell it at the time of making the submission? Well, many companies do that, but in my opinion, that's a huge regulatory risk. Instead, as as you know, John, I'm a huge fan of the pre-submission process. I would take it to the FDA as a pre-sub and say, "Here's my device. This is the way that it works. Uh, this is our labeling, and so on." For all of the reasons, uh, for all of the following reasons, we're doing this as a five ten k or. Alternatively, for all of the reasons, uh, we're doing it as a de novo. You know, it's interesting, John. When when I go to the FDA with either a five ten k or a de novo, the information that I present is exactly the same. It's just the spin that's different. So if I'm doing it as a five ten k, I emphasize the similarities. If I am doing it as a de novo, I emphasize the differences.
0: Yeah, and and I guess I was. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah a couple of thoughts are am rattling around in my head right now, like first and foremost, I guess I'm trying to think okay uh, there's of of course a new guidance uh, that's out there, but uh, you know and you kind of danced around this a moment ago, but number one, what is really new and number two, when does this guidance when when should I be using this and And I'm going to hit you with a few questions. Uh, Let's stop there. So I guess, what is new? And when is a a point in case that I should really think about using this, quote, new approach? We've
1: already talked a little bit about what's new or really what's not new. Let's move on to the second question. This this is a question that I'm already getting, is when should I consider using this uh, new safety and performance-based 510K? So our audience has to keep in mind that up until now, We've had three types of, uh, three subtypes of 510K traditional, special, and abbreviated. Now we have a fourth subtype. It's actually, to use FDA's verbiage, it's a subtype of a subtype. In other words, it's a, it's a subtype. The safety and performance based 510K is a subtype of the abbreviated 510K, which in turn is a subtype of the 510K. Okay, so when should we use this? Well, the recommendation here is pretty simple. If my predicate is either impractical to get or impossible to get, this would be the opportunity to use this. I'll give you a a quick example. A few years ago, I was involved in bringing an in vitro diagnostic, an IVD, onto the market as a 510K. Our predicate was no longer commercially available. The 510K was active, but the predicate was no longer commercially available. In other words, we could not physically get a hold of one, even if we wanted to. So it it, it just was not physically available. So the question is, how do we show substantial equivalence to a device that we cannot get a hold of? This is when the paper substantial equivalence argument comes in. And as a matter of fact, I've, believe it or not, John, I saw somebody do this because as you know, I work as a consultant for the agency. I had somebody come in um, and they said, well, our device is substantially equivalent to this other device but the other device is not available we can't get it but just kind of take our word for it it's basically the same fda <laughs> is going to tell you go pound sand you're you're laughing john uh, you know but but it's amazing what i what i see happen in the real world fda is going to tell you go pound sand you know because it's not their problem it's your it's our responsibility to show substantial equivalence so in that case we showed it on paper we were able to Get enough information from the literature. We also involved subject matter experts that had a good understanding of the predicate technology as well as our technology. And we were, we were able to get them to do some paper comparisons. So at the end of the day, um, what FDA will take into account is what the lawyers call the totality of the evidence. If all of our evidence, all Added together, whether it's head-to-head testing, paper comparison, subject matter experts, literature review, and so on and so on. Um, when, when the totality of the evidence is considered, if we can show that it's substantially equivalent, we have been successful. If we haven't, if we're not able to show that it's a substantially equivalent, then our alternative is the de novo. It's about as uh, as simple or as complicated as that, shot.
0: All right, does that makes well, sense. It does, and I'm glad you mentioned. Uh, de novo. So, you know, some of the other things that, that have been happening from an FDA perspective is there's been some updates recently on uh, de novo side of things as well. And and I guess I'm curious, I mean, it seems like there's been a lot of, I don't know, pressure is the right word, but maybe it is the right word. So we'll use pressure uh, on the whole 510k path. And you alluded to some of that a moment ago. Um, but um, We've seen a lot of iterations or a lot of updates on the 510k side of things, a little bit on the de novo side of things, but it seems like, I I guess, why isn't FDA pushing more de novos? Why are they still pushing the 510k?
1: Well, that's a great question, John. And in my opinion, part of it is because of uh, industry. You know, people are in- inherently afraid of what they don't understand or what they don't have a lot of experience with. And for better or for worse, they're, you know the, the, the 510K has been the workhorse of the medical device industry here in the United States. So that's what people are most familiar with. In terms of the de novo, and as you know from, from our past conversations, John, I've got a tremendous amount of de novo experience. I can tell you this, that because of all of the bad press around the 510K, it is much easier for me to sell a de novo at the agency right now than it is a 510K. And I also think that there's a certain degree of PR value because de novos are supposed to be for new and novel devices, whereas 510Ks are supposed to be for Me Too's. So it's easier for the politicians to tout that they're encouraging new innovation if they can say that we've had an increase in de novos. As a matter of fact, I've even go so far as to say that uh, because of the, the, the negative pressure on the 510K, we are going to be seeing more de novos in the future. FDA is taking a more literal interpretation of the risk regulation when it comes to 510Ks. And maybe this is a topic that, we can drill into in more detail in a future conversation, John, but I've got firsthand experience of devices that I thought were um, legitimate five ten Ks that FDA is pushing strongly back on, wanting the company to do a de novo, because they're taking a more literal interpretation of the risk requirements when it comes to the five ten K. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. What I am saying is that it is highly inconsistent with the agency's uh, interpretation of exactly the same regulation over the last forty years. Because let's be honest, John, we've got, and I use this example at fda um in in one of my pre-sub meetings when i got so frustrated with the conversation um we have uh mri machines that have come onto the market as a 510k making a substantial equivalence argument to a ct scanner now it doesn't take a, a phd in biomedical engineering to appreciate that gee one system is involving magnetism. The other system is involving x-ray. That's a difference in the technology, and clearly there are additional risks that are associated, and yet it was still 510 kable Those kinds of things in the past have happened with tremendous frequency. Today, it's becoming more difficult to do. That's a bit okay. of a tangent, maybe we can talk about that in a different conversation yeah. but but anyway that's that's my quick response to your question on that one
0: okay, so folks again, I want to remind you we're talking about this new safety and performance five ten k safety and performance, as you've heard Mike and I chat about uh, on this episode already, is part and parcel to any medical device product development. Uh, design controls risk. That's key, and you know I would encourage you uh, if you're struggling with that or you want to learn about a simpler, uh, frankly, better way to manage that information. Well, you should reach out to us at Greenlight Guru. Um, we built an EQS software platform complete with workflows for helping you better manage design controls and risk, and and we've come out with this brand new refreshing approach from a design review perspective that's going to make your life so much easier as a medical device product development professional as well. So be sure to go over to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about that. So, Mike, we've kind of covered that there's not really anything new here, that some of the things that are stated in this guidance, uh, they've been in practice uh, for for. Quite some time by many regulatory professionals. Um, I guess it begs the question, is there a type of 510k that, that we really do need that we don't have, in your opinion? Well, it's funny you mentioned that, John. Uh, yes,
1: in fact, I really do. You know, if FDA is really interested in improving the 510K and creating a new version of the 510K, one thing that we really need, and perhaps this is also something that we can talk about in a future conversation, is what some people refer to as a catch up 510K. And this is to address a problem. Many in your audience know of predicate creep. Well, there's a similar phenomenon called change creep and that is a medical device company gets a device on the market they make a small change to it it's not a significant enough change that they need to notify FDA so they do it as a letter to file then they make another small change once again they don't notify FDA because it's a small change they do it as a letter to file they make a third change small change they do it as a letter to file don't notify FDA well you see where i'm going with this john Each I do. Of these small changes incrementally is not very significant, and you can justify doing it as a letter to file. But after a series of these changes, when you add them all up, now, you know, it's the philosophical question, how many changes, how different can you make, uh, how many changes can you make in a medical device before you have a new or a different medical device? We have no formal way of bringing that kind of information to the FDA in a prophylactic way. Most of the time when companies have to deal with this, as you know, John, they get an inspection, they get a, a warning letter uh, from a 483 because they've made changes to the de- to the device and they haven't notified FDA. I've suggested many times that we need um, something like a catch-up 510K. I would also like to have a category of a presub where we can do the same thing. We go into the agency and we say, hey, it's been a while since we talked to you about our last device. As a matter of professional courtesy, we want to update you as to the series of changes that we've made to it. Um, The way that I deal with that pragmatically, John, because unlike a lot of people, I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to hold me back, I'm not going to say, well, FDA doesn't have a mechanism to make this work, therefore I can't do it. That's a convenient excuse. That's a cop-out. So here's what I uh, suggest to to companies. We we take all of these changes and we package them up into a special 510K. A special 510K has been around for, for 20 years. The most common reason why we use it is to notify Uh, FDA of a change. So we identify the most significant change. We submit it as a special 510K and embedded in that special 510K, we also include the other changes that we have made along with all of the supporting documentation, the testing and so on to show that that the change does not introduce new questions of safety and efficacy. It's not a change in the high level labeling, the indications or anything like that. Now, some companies that I suggest that to, John, They don't want to do that. Because they are afraid that if they notify FDA of a change, that's going to open up a Pandora's box, and now they're going to have all kinds of problems. And as, yeah. But as long as they have the documentation in place, I'm not worried about that. The question to the that I have to the company is, do you want to be proactive or do you want to be reactive? Do you want to go to the FDA and say, here are all the changes that we're, we've made, and here's all our testing to support them? Or do you not want to tell the FDA and have that inspection or have – Somebody come knocking on your door. Uh, it's the FDA. Hey, you seem to be uh, have made a change to this medical device. We don't remember you ever telling us about that in the past. What the heck is going on here? I think we need a, a mechanism that we can proactively take that to the FDA without having problems to deal with first. Yeah. What do you think of that idea, John? Well,
0: uh, you know, you and I had the the pleasure of talking about this very topic. I guess it was probably about a year ago at a at an event. I think there's a uh, a video or recording of you and i chatting about changes uh that uh, you know, if i can locate that i'll i'll include that um but it, i think it goes into much more depth on that particular topic but uh, but i agree i mean it's it's um it's a tricky thing and i you know to to go a little bit deeper on that i think sometimes people think oh letter to file document a memo put it in the file but but a letter to file, um, to borrow you know uh, something that I've heard you say many times and I agree with 100%, uh, a letter to file doesn't mean that that's a shortcut for the, the work, the effort, the, the due diligence that you have to do to be able to demonstrate that the change you're making is still... Uh, safe and, and effective, you still need to go through the, the prudent engineering to, to be able to demonstrate that even if the ultimate path is not a new 510K and ultimately uh, results in some sort of letter letter to file, it's not a shortcut for the work. I guess, you know, my kind of thinking about wrapping up on, on today's session, uh, you know, we've covered, you know, kind of a lot of ground. I think a lot of this is sort of a review or refresher on different points and tidbits of general 510Ks but um, what do you think are some key takeaways for folks on the safety and performance-based 510K?
1: So just to wrap this up, John, I think the key takeaways are as follows. First of all, uh, in my professional opinion, not just as a regulatory consultant, but as a biomedical engineer, I would characterize the, um, the, the safety and performance-based 510K as being substantially equivalent to the abbreviated 510K. And, and, and pun is 100% intended here. I see it to be substantially equivalent. Yes, there are some very, very minor differences between the two, but in reality, I don't think there are significant differences. The question is, are more companies going to be utilizing this new safety and performance-based 510K? Well, it was just created, so time will tell, but here's my thinking on it. I did some quick um, calculations based on the Medufa statistics for 2018, John, and of the approximately 3,500 510Ks that went through the agency last calendar year, only about two and a half percent of them were the abbreviated 510K. And so if the safety and performance-based 510K is a subtype of the abbreviated 510K, which is exactly how FDA is spinning it, And the abbreviated 510K is only used about 2.5% of the time. I'm not sure, quite frankly, that many companies are going to be keen on this particular tool. In other words, I don't see that it really solves that many problems that we can't solve using one of the existing tools. Uh, but but most importantly, if our audience doesn't remember anything else, they should remember this. When it comes to this new safety and performance-based 510K, it allows us to do this um, paper-based substantial equivalence argument as opposed to a head-to-head substantial equivalence comparison, especially in situations where, as we talked about before, John, getting a physical predicate device is either impractical or, in some cases, even impossible. So those are the situations when I would consider using it. Obviously, time will tell, but my standard advice is, when you're going to, do, when you're planning on doing any kind of a 510K, whether it's this new safety and performance based 510K or some other type, take it to the agency in advance in the form of a preso and say, Hey, here's our device. This is the way it works. This is what it does for all of the following reasons. We're going to bring it onto the market as a safety under this safety and performance based 510K and sell it to them. You can greatly mitigate the questions and the problems that you run into down the road by simply doing that much.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and that's that's good advice. Regardless, uh, to to reiterate your point, regardless of your pathway, that's just good sound advice for frankly any any type of regulatory submission, whether it be uh, any variation of five ten k or tech file or PMA, or it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, this is this is just a good solid approach, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for uh, giving us a little bit more insights, a little bit more information about this new safety and performance. Uh, pathway from a 510k standpoint. Again, folks have been talking with Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences. Uh, He's your man to talk to about progressive, innovative, creative regulatory strategies. He is a really wonderful asset. I know I've talked to him many times. I know we've had many customers who who work with him as well. And as I mentioned before, and, and I'll mention once again, there's challenges for you as a product development professional, for sure. I mean, document management, design controls risk. You've got to set up a quality management system. I mean, these all are things that I'll, uh, I'll admit most people don't look forward to, but you, know, you can look at them as a necessary evil, I suppose. But the way we look at it at Greenlight Guru is that this is um, an opportunity for you to run and operate a better, more sound business that puts emphasis on true quality, puts emphasis on... Improving the quality of life that puts emphasis on what is good for the patient. I hope you consider that as you explore uh, bringing your new products to market and the safety and performance of those products. And of course, if you need some help with your quality management system, always go check out what we're doing at Greenlight Guru, www.greenlight.guru and request more information. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.